Well, good morning. How you doing? Yeah, we didn't mention earlier, Scott Ryan is our guest worship leader today. You know Scott, and uh, so glad he's here. So just wanted to mention that. We're giving back to God now. That's what these buckets are for, for you to dump lots of money in because we need the help. We have to pay our staff and, and the bills and so on. Really, it's about us making sure that we are grateful and that we thank God for all of his goodness to us. That's what it's really about. So, uh, yeah, I just want to mention that. And uh, you guys doing good? You all right? Yeah, it's... Uh, it's January, and it's going to be 80 outside, and I just can't think of enough people in the Midwest to call. But anyway, um, so, <laughs> so I'm glad you're here. We're going to have fun. We're going to learn some good stuff today. So we've been talking about <clears throat> the idea that uh, we all want a perfect life, but at some point we realize we don't have it, and we're probably not going to get it. And the best we could hope for is to just project to other people that our life is actually, <clears throat> excuse me, is better than it actually is. It's called social media. So um, there's got to be something more than trying to convince other people that our life is better than it actually is. What if we actually had a better life? What if it wasn't about projecting a better life? What if our life became better? And that's exactly what Scripture says. Um, we read a passage in 1 Peter 1 that we are to be holy, even as God is holy. And in, in, in verse 15 of chapter 1, be holy. Holiness is about becoming like Jesus. And so we, we think that's probably a better way to spend our energy than trying to fool other people into thinking our life is better than it is. Just become more like Jesus and life will be better. So that's kind of what this series is about. If you want to take out a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, if not, you can use a phone app or you can follow along. Um, and in that, in that passage, it begins right off the bat. So here is Peter. Remember, this is a pastoral kind of letter. He's, he loves these people. He cares about it. He's encouraging these people. They are um, from uh, formerly pagan backgrounds, meaning non-Jewish, um, worshiping a number of gods. And he knows that they're going to face persecution at some point. So he's trying to encourage them, build them up in their faith so they can, they can uh, not only survive, but thrive even in difficult times. And so he, he's, not, um, he's not kind of coming down hard on him. He's trying to teach them a better way. Literally, kind of the point of this, this book is here is the Jesus way, the better way to live your life. Okay? So, in, in, and we'll just follow along here. And let's go ahead and put up verse 1, uh, 1 Peter 2, 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now, right off the bat, he goes after um, social media. Does he not? I didn't know that Peter knew about social media, but when I read that list, I went, my goodness, that's what happens on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever you're into. So um, I looked at that. They're all kind of, kind of, it kind of looks to me like they're kind of relational sins, things we do to each other, right, to kind of make ourselves look better, feel better, what it is. So right off the bat, he goes after these. Now, what's interesting about this, this passage is it's not just those words, which are obvious words, we shouldn't do those, but it's the, it's the kind of the nastiness that he associates with it. So right off the bat, he says, therefore, rid yourselves. Now, I want to I give you, I know it's early in the morning, and this is going to be really graphic, but I want you to understand the seriousness that he's coming at these words, all right? So right off the bat, rid yourselves. And I need you to understand when he says rid yourselves, what he means. So to do that, I'm going to give you an illustration. And it goes along with this first paragraph, because kind of the, the word I would use to describe this first paragraph is babies. We'll get to it. Okay, so um, on Wednesday night, we had a worship night here, and uh, lots of folks here, and it was great. And right before worship night, um, I, I was uh, back uh, behind the stage, and I was um, my little grandson, Jed, three months old, was um, kind of a little fussy. So I grabbed him and picked him up just before, just a few minutes before um, we were to start. And I was going to do a little 
you know, little uh, devotional thing in it. So I, I was, you know, I was ready for that. And so I picked him up and suddenly I heard a sound. It was not from heaven. It was pointed the other direction. I can give you a picture here of that. Go ahead. Yeah, boy. That's my boy. And then, what was also funny is his big brother, Ezra, three years old, said, oh, I don't want to smell it. I don't want to smell it. So there, here's the pastor chasing his little grandson around with this rear end. Anyway, it was hilarious. What was even funnier is I went to change shirts. And in the meantime, Cody was supposed to change Jed. And he started gagging so bad he had to come get his wife out of rehearsal off the stage. Can we just say pansy together? Can we just say that? He made fun of me while I go. That's serious stuff. I mean, me saying something offensive, that's no news item. That's fake news. But anyway, um, but him gagging his own son, that's, you know, that's pretty wimpy. So, so now what do you do when your grandson has just soiled your shirt? You take it off, right? Right? As a matter of fact, you Get it off as quick as you can, and you wash yourself as best you can. Who knows? It could stain your skin, that stuff. It's nasty. So anyway, <laughs> so in this passage, it says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and The word there is strip off. It's exactly the same word as you would do with that little baby's outfit there, which, you know, his, his contribution exceeded his diaper capacity. You would, you would strip that off. What Peter is saying here is, this isn't a suggestion. This wouldn't be nice if you stopped doing this stuff. It's like, this is nasty stuff you're doing. You're on a better way now. You are seeking to be like Jesus. You're on a path toward holiness. This is nasty, smelly, stinky stuff. Get it off. That's really the image here. Strip it off. Get rid of it. It's not something you need. It's not a part of who you are and who you're becoming, okay? So that's, it's kind of a, I want it to be a little graphic. That's the point here, okay? But then he goes on, and you understand now why I talked about babies. So in verse 2, so 1 Peter 2, 2, here's what it says. It says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now there's uh, several things I want to point out here. Uh, so like newborn babies. Now he is talking to fairly new converts um, who are uh, from a pagan background, and he said, you need pure spiritual milk. Now there's some interesting things about craving pure spiritual milk. It, so a lot of people want a lot of things. We, there's a lot of things we want in life, but pure spiritual milk is what we actually need. Now my wife and I have an ongoing argument because she likes milk, and I tell her that once you're grown up, you don't need milk anymore right? Unless it's frozen and has chocolate chips in it. Then it's really good for you, right? So uh, crave pure spiritual milk. I one time had a doctor who told me I needed to drink more water. And I said, well, does iced tea count? He said, is iced tea and water the same thing? I said, well, I don't know, are they? He said, iced tea is basically dirty water. I said water, not dirty water. And so he was like, you need pure water, not other stuff in it. Well, part of what we need to come to grips with is that not just as babies, but through our entire spiritual journey, we need pure milk. Now, what does this mean? It means many things, but the basics of it is this, I believe. It's reading scripture, prayer, and obedience. If you will practice not just once, 
So whenever, whenever you see a golfer learning, I don't know anything about golf, but they, they're messing, they go back to the basics. They go back to the basics. We need to, on a regular basis, go back to Now, there's another passage in the New Testament in which you told you, yeah, grow milk, you get solid food. There's a different metaphor here in the sense that I think Peter is saying that you need always to have milk in your diet. You need to have pure spiritual food in your diet. Reading the Word, prayer, and obedience. You do those three things every day. Get better. You will grow. You will become more like Jesus. And that's the point of Peter's deal here, right? So um, now I was thinking about, uh, about this, and I happened to hear a news story. And so I, uh, I, I went and did some reading on it. Um, so a, a baby on pure mother's milk, it's an amazing thing. I, 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 never really, I knew it was good for him. I didn't really understand. So there's research, current research right now, that is suggesting that not only is mother's milk to that child healthy, it may be even more healthy than we know. So the current research right now is suggesting that through the baby's saliva or backwash, uh, that the mother's body gathers information about the health of the baby and what it needs. One example of that there's and I, I, there Luke, Lucas sites or something. I don't know what the name of it is. But there's something that when a newborn baby begins to, to breastfeed, that there is these huge amounts of these in the, in the milk. But as the baby grows and gets healthier, it subsides. But the minute the baby gets sick, they come back into play in, in full force again. For example, when a baby begins to get sick, the mother's body b- begins to do, uh, produce um, uh, antibodies to give to the baby to fend it off. Isn't that interesting? And so there's this research going on somewhere in Australia, some other places, that the mother's milk is actually daily adjusted for that child's health. More than daily, probably several times a day, adjusted at every feeding to feed that child specifically what it needs. Isn't, isn't uh, evolution incredible? Sorry, that was just for fun, just to see if you're awake. The application is this. Have you ever read, read uh, a, a passage and you go, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I needed today? You ever been at a church service where the pastor said something offensive, but he also said something that was very helpful to you? I've actually had people come to me and say, man, that was exactly what I needed, this and this and this. And I'm thinking, I don't think I said that, but I may have, I don't know. Have you ever had that? God adjusts his word, his spiritual nourishment for you to whatever it is you need, whatever truth you need to be reminded of, God will bring that to you. That's why we return again and again to the basics of reading, prayer, and obedience. Now, um, so that you may grow up. Now, here's interesting. We'll put verse 2 back up there again. Uh, So that you will grow up in your salvation. Now, what it really means there is into your salvation. So let me remind you again that positionally, um, legally, because of what Christ has done and we believe in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and we are holy legally. But we also, in a practical sense, have to grow into that person, into that holiness, okay? And so when he says grow up in, it can also be translated grow up into your salvation. And the way we do that is reading prayer, obedience, okay? And then verse 3 just simply says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a quote from Psalms, which says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So this first section that Peter's saying is, remember, 
be, we, we talked about childlike obedience last week. Remember to be humble like a baby, like a child, knowing you're dependent upon God for spiritual food. You can't generate your own spiritual food any more than a baby can make its own milk. All right? You can't do that. It has to come from God. And it comes through His Word, prayer, and obedience. So the second section now, if the first one's about babies, the second one's about builders. And so the second metaphor that Peter used here is about building. And so I'm going to read this through, and then I'll go back and explain it. So starting with verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone. Now let's just stop there. The living stone. Living, Livingston, right? We've heard that as a last name. Have you ever stopped what a living stone is? <laughs> What is a living stone, okay? So he's getting ready to talk about um, building, construction. And, but he's saying that the, the kind of building we're building is based on a living stone. Therefore, it's going to be a living structure. Do you follow me? As opposed to a dead monument, all right? So he's saying that Jesus, talking about Jesus, is the living stone. We'll, we'll talk about that a little more. Um, he's rejected by humans, uh, but chosen by God and precious to him. So that's who Jesus was. Go on to verse 5. You also, like living stones, so you, as you're becoming like Jesus, you are a part of this building, um, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So let's go on to verse 6. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So here is the picture, this cornerstone. So the first thing we said, I was a living stone, so that Jesus is building something. So remember the disciples thought Jesus was going to build a, uh, like a, a, a geopolitical kingdom, right? He was going to overthrow the Romans and, and establish a new Israel. There's a reference, Peter's making the reference to the fact that he was going to build a kingdom, but it wasn't geopolitical, and it wasn't just going to be the, the lifespan of, of the leader or whatever it was. It was going to be forever, and it was going to be a spiritual kingdom. Living stone is a reference to the resurrection, and that he was going to build a different kind of kingdom, one that could be in any nation, any place, at any time, and that we, as living stones, little Jesuses, that's what Christian means, Christ follower, as Christ followers, we are a part of building that. Now, I need to change your way of thinking because this word cornerstone is, is a really important word, that Jesus is the cornerstone. You may have heard that, maybe even sang it in songs. It's a really important word, and you need to understand it. So oftentimes, unless you've visited the Holy Land, you may think of... Uh, during Jesus' time being ancient times, and there were simple people, and they were rubbing sticks together for fire, and so on. They were not. They were highly sophisticated. The Greeks and then the Romans, highly, highly sophisticated, built great buildings. You ever heard of the Parthenon, the Acropolis? That was all built before Jesus' time. And so when they think about cornerstones, they're not thinking about, has anybody ever seen a modern cornerstone like in a building? Like, I think it was like in the 50s and 60s, they started putting little stones in the corner. They put a little time capsule in there with a newspaper from the day. And, you know, little, you ever heard of that? Yeah, that's not the cornerstone they're talking about. The cornerstone they're talking about is massive. It's massive. So, for example, if you look, I, I read, I watched a thing recently on the Parthenon. I thought it was interesting how they built that. How did they move those multi-ton stones up onto these things? They're very sophisticated. For example, just to give you a little insight, the, the columns uh, on the Parthenon uh, were actually left rough and with little knobs sticking out on each side, and they could tie a rope around each one because they're trying to replace some of them now, and they can't figure out how to get them up there because a the rope won't grab them because they were carved in place after they were put there. Do you know what holds those very, very heavy stones in? 
They were so tight. They were carved so tight. When they put them together, they were watertight. Do you know what holds them in in the middle? There's a little square about that big, and it's got wood in it. 2,000-plus-year-old wood still holding it from moving. That's how tight they were by the craftsmen. That's amazing. They can't by hand duplicate it. We don't have artisans that good anymore. It's an amazing thing. So when Peter is writing it, he may be thinking about that kind of building because throughout the ancient world there were huge temples and he's writing to uh, Asia Minor, Northern Asia Minor. They may well have seen that or a temple like it or he may be thinking about the temple in Jerusalem. For those who aren't great um, in terms of your history of the Bible, uh, there was a temple built by Solomon, which was destroyed, and then Herod, uh, just before Jesus' time, and maybe finishing up during Jesus' time, um, built the second temple, Herod's Temple, which is what you see now when you go to Jerusalem. If you go to visit the, the western wall or the southern wall, the other wall, you see those are Herod, that's from Herod's temple. So just to give you an idea, and you need to understand this because this is about Jesus, not, not about construction, but he's using construction to help them understand how important, powerful, big Jesus is. All right, so uh, we, have, we pulled up a picture here. So this would be a wall. Now what's interesting about these is that, that one looks like it's probably on the southern or western wall trying to think what that is up above there. It's probably the southern wall. So if you notice this, there's even a little rim around the outside. So not only do they put this, but now you're looking at that and going, I don't know how big that is. That thing is probably 60 tons. That's how big that piece is right there. So the cornerstone in, in what they have found so far of that wall, just that wall uh, of the Temple Mount is um, it's uh, 39 feet uh, by 43 inches by, I think, 15 feet wide. I can't remember the exact width. I'll look at it here in a minute. And, but it was not only placed in a perfect position, it's even, it's even got like a raised panel. They chiseled out around it to make it look good. And every stone uh, moving up the wall is set back just a, a, a sliver of an inch so that the wall, if we're straight up and down, might look like it's falling toward you. It's an optical illusion. They even knew that. These are 10 stories high originally. And it was set back just a slight enough, just so the wall looked like it wasn't going to fall on you. This is how sophisticated they were, okay? So anybody having traveled in the ancient world or seen it, when he talks about a cornerstone, he would have known. So now let me give you, let me give you a, an example. The cornerstone that they have found, in, in they believe the cornerstone of this wall, would be from here, about, about here to where, I don't know if you can see that camera sitting over there, that camera. That's how long it is. They, the, um, archaeologists can't even figure out how they got it there. And that's not the biggest one. It weighed 80 tons. It weighed 80 tons. It was that long. It was, I think, 15 feet wide. I'll look here. And 43 inches high. And that's the cornerstone. The largest stone is 570 tons. How did the ancients get them there? They're still trying to figure out how they did it. So let me, let me give you the cornerstone. The cornerstone, I just wrote this down to make sure I got it right. The cornerstone was 39 feet, four inches long, seven feet, 10 inches wide, seven feet, sorry, not 15, and 43 high. The largest stone was 570 tons. This is in that wall I just showed you, the largest stone, 44 feet long, which would be over here, 15 feet wide and 10 feet high. So when, when Peter calls Jesus the cornerstone, which is an Old Testament picture. When he calls him a cornerstone, he's not saying it's a little thing we stick in the corner and we add it to our building to make it look cool or to tell when it was built. 
the cornerstone, here, and here, make the application with me, if you will. The cornerstone, so this big old cornerstone, this is laid first. It is laid first. It's dug down to solid rock, and then it's laid, and then everything else orients and is re- references that, orients from that. So that's laid first. Everything else gets built from that. So now I've, I've done a little bit of building. I'm not any good at it, but I've, I've done a mission strips and different stuff in Billy. And I always, I'm, I always get frustrated with the real builders because they take so long laying the thing out and getting the foundation right. I'm thinking, let's just put it up. We'll fix it later. <laughs> kind of my motto in life. The problem is when you don't lay out the foundation right, nothing else will be right, and it's hard to fix it later. You have to jack the whole house up, fix that. And it, it's really... Here is the picture. There is this humongous thing that everything else gets built on top of, reference to, built around it. The point of that, Peter is saying, if you get the cornerstone of your life right, everything else will work. If you get the cornerstone wrong, nothing else works. You follow me? If you build it on Jesus, who is big enough, massive enough, strong enough to handle whatever it is, if you build it on that, otherwise you build it on sand, we know from that child's song, right? It's going to collapse. And he's saying, so he would say to us from that first thing, if you build your life on deceit, uh, on hypocrisy, on projecting some kind of image, trying to impress others, it's just sand. And when the rains come, you're in trouble. You build it on Jesus. No matter what comes, it's going to stay. How do we know that Parthenon's still standing? <laughs> that temple mount is still there. Because if you build your life right, and so he is teaching these people who are about to experience um, uh, persecution, build your life on Jesus. Build an orient, reference everything to that. Everything will come out of that. So that's verses um, uh, through 7. Now, um, so uh, let's, let's go back to, um, let's go back to 7. Let's look at 7. Now, to you who believe this, uh, to you who believe this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So let's stop right there. So if we are Christians, we believe that Jesus is that cornerstone. If you build your life on him, your life is going to work the way God wants to work, the way you want it to work, the way it's supposed to work. But if you don't believe, go on to verse 8. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now, this is an interesting thing. So we all, anybody who's going to the church goes, yes, Jesus is the cornerstone. He makes people stumble if they don't believe him. But I'm trying to figure that out. How do you have an 80-ton rock that makes somebody stumble? Right? If that's going to make you fall, you're falling a long way. And it's going to hurt. How do we move from this massive cornerstone metaphor to a little rock that makes you stumble? How does that work? It's in the mind of the unbeliever. It, it, this is my theory. This is first chapter of Doyle. Take it, leave it. But the way it seems to me, if, if I understand who Jesus is, and I see him as almighty God, all-powerful, massive in concept, then I, I, my, my life, and I believe that my life is going to be what it's supposed to be. If I somehow try to shrink him down to something that I can comprehend and manage... All he's going to be is a stumbling block to me. Why is that? So I met a lot of people who um, don't like Christ followers. I mean, I met a few Christ followers I wasn't fond of either. Um, I rarely meet anybody who doesn't like Jesus. Almost always say, oh, Jesus, what a... They don't say that because they admire the teaching. They admire the life if they believe he existed. 
But what they try to do is they try to explain away his divinity, his power, his, his teaching, and, and chip away at it till it gets down small enough that they can actually accept it. Small enough that they can explain it. Those miracles, those weren't really miracles. Resurrection, that wasn't really true. His disciples made that up later. He was just a good teacher. Chip, 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 until they get it down to something that they can comprehend. And if you think you've got Jesus down to something you can comprehend, you are going to chip on that. Because <laughs> you're going to ignore his teaching, you're going to disobey his teaching, and it's going to mess up your life. Right? We need to always remember who Jesus is. Always take him for who he is according to Scripture. Always trust that because he is He's either Lord, lunatic, or liar, as C.S. Lewis said. Don't chip him down to something else. He wasn't a mere human. He wasn't just a Jewish friend. I like Jesus. I didn't like Paul because Paul's the one who made the whole religion up. Right? No, Jesus said some pretty outrageous things. He said some pretty amazing things, including that the temple would be destroyed, which it was in 70 A.D., just a few years after the writing of 1 Peter. So Jesus is big, big enough that you can trust him, big enough you can put your life on him. And anyway, let me, uh, let me finish up. Uh, in verse 8. How are we doing on time? Oh, we're good. i got another hour's worth of talking. That's good. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So the first section was for, uh, about us being spiritual babies. And now this section is about us being spiritual builders. That, uh, and then this last section kind of finishes up that we belong. That we belong. And so let's, uh, let's go on to verse 9, please. Verses 9 and 10. So verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Now let me just stop on both of those. A chosen people. A chosen, that means that you, you have been chosen by God. We talked about that last week. That makes you pretty special. And then it talks about a royal priesthood. Now I didn't talk about priesthood in the last section because I was just talking about here. What is a priesthood? Hey, let me just, I'm going to quickly hit this and then move on. A priesthood. If you think about other religions of the ancient world or even Judaism, and even some Christian religions, historically, the average person did not have access to God. In pagan religions, they would take a sacrifice, have a sacrifice, hoping that would somehow through that temple worship uh, appease God. Even in Judaism, you had to go to a priest and, and, and have, a, have a sacrifice, and hopefully that would, God would forgive your sins, whatever. But because of Jesus and because we are Christ's followers, you don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to come to me and tell me your sins, and I'll tell you to do five, hail, whatever, right? I don't have to do that because... We have direct access to God. You go to God, you tell him you're sorry, and you be forgiven, and you move on with this journey, right? If you have somebody in your family who's sick, you don't have to call me to come pray for them. Oh, the Bible says call the elders of the church, and we will come pray, but you don't have to. It says God knows, and you can talk to God yourself, and you can pray over that person right then and there. You don't need to wait for me to show up. because So this was re kind of re- affirmed and reclaimed again in the, in the Reformation, the priesthood of all believers. So any function a priest could do in the Old Testament, repentance, prayer, caring for others, we can do now because we are part of that temple being built. We are a part of that function. It goes on a holy nation, a holy nation. Another word I might use to describe this last section is tribe. We all want to belong to a tribe. We all want to belong somewhere. Your tribe might be guys who play racquetball or tennis or, 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 I don't know, women who shop at Nordstrom's. My wife belongs to the, My wife may be the president of that tribe. Um, 
You know, you might belong. So I, I went to Disneyland recently, and uh, and I ha- it's been a while since I it, really long time since I was there. I was a youth pastor for many years. Went to more uh, amusement parks I ever wanted to go to. It's okay if I never go in again. But then my grandkids came along, and Papa. Okay, fine. So I went to Disneyland last week for the first time in twenty some years, and my kids say I never took them once. But I think I did once, but it was really, really quick. It was lunch. But anyway, um, and it's weird. The people there. I mean, the people, like, I, I recognize the Midwesterners because I, I come from that same stock. I get that. But then when it started getting later in the day, then they had a, uh, like a, like a 50s night or something. Like, is that my? And as I'm walking out, there are all of these young adult, adults dressed up 50s style. Not that I was in the 50s, but I've heard. And they're dressed up 50s style, coming, like hundreds of young adults coming to Disneyland dressed up like the sock hop kind of thing. And I'm thinking, Why? Why, why, you know Mickey Mouse isn't real, right? Do you know that? And, and I even, somebody even showed me this week, somebody showed me this week that there is actually a Disney gang. Like they have, they have like vests with patches and everything. I'm thinking that can't be too intimidating, really. Seriously? A Disney gang, that's kind of oxymoronic, right? But here's the deal. There is within us this desire to belong. There is a desire. That's why we join things. We want to be a part of it. We want to be identified with certain people. We were made to belong. We're made to belong to God and to each other in his name. We were made to belong. And there's two deep, deep needs we have. One is to belong, and one is to have a reason for our existence, a purpose, a mission, if you will. That's why service organizations exist. We, as a group of people who belong, we help children in need, okay, whatever, because we have this need to belong and we have a need for mission. This word, this phrase, a holy nation, is about both of those things. It's about us belonging. We've been chosen by God. We belong to him together. And remember what holiness is. It's set apart for God's good purpose. A holy nation is a group of people empowered by God to do. It's not just for us. It's not to feel better and hang on and tell jokes. It is for us to love God, to love each other, and change the world. That's what the holy nation thing is. We are here. Um, goes on God's special possession. God loves us very special. Uh, now, I'm going to say something that's going to be shocking, but we are the most important people in the world. Those who belong to the holy nation are the most important people in the world. Why is that? Because the ultimate problem in the world is separation from God. Is that not true? Every other evil that exists in the world comes because we're separated from God, his love, his plan, his goodness. We who have been reconciled through no merit of our own, so we don't get to brag about being the most important people, we get to feel the responsibility and the opportunity of being the most important people because we, as Scripture says, are to be reconcilers. We are the ones who reconcile people to God and people to each other. Therefore, we play the most important role. We dare not shirk that responsibility and opportunity. We are God's holy nation. So how do we do that? How do we play that role? It says in the last part of, of, of 9, it says it. God's special possession, which means God cares deeply for us, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's declaring his praises. How do you declare God's praises? It's, first of all, we declare them to him. Not that God has forgotten, but that we oftentimes forget. And so in our daily Bible reading, prayer, and obedience, 
We say to God, you are. And then we describe his character, his goodness, his kindness. And we thank him for how good he's been to us specifically. And so we declare his praises to him so that we are reminded. And then we declare his praises to each other and to those who don't know yet. Now, here's the problem. When we get to that part, you think, you begin to think, well, I got to be a used car salesman. You got to believe in Jesus. You got to believe in today. Or, or if you don't, tomorrow the deal's off and you're going to be a greasy spot going to hell, right? We're not supposed to be used salesmen. It's more like my wife and her vacuum cleaner. My wife has found a vacuum cleaner that she loves. If you ask her, she will tell you. She loves it so much. She bought my daughter and daughter-in-law vacuum cleaners for Christmas, and they thought it was a good gift. If I bought a vacuum cleaner, I don't think it'd be a good gift. And she will say to you, she will not say, you've got to, have a vacuum. You've got to buy this, you've got to buy it today. She will say, this vacuum cleaner, my house has never been so clean. I cannot believe how good this vacuum cleaner, how well it works. She will just tell you about that. And that's it. That's what she'll do. When we declare his praises, we're just supposed to say, this is what God has done for me. This is who God is and this is what he's done for me. We don't have to sell anybody. You know, you got till five o'clock. Right? Declare his praises. That's how we Share his goodness and why we're the most important people in the world. Then in verse 10, it says this. Once you were not a people, just a reminder, something that causes us to be uh, consistently grateful. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What it reminds us of, you didn't used to be a people. You used to be looking for the right group to belong to until you received God's mercy, undeserved favor, until God said, I love you, I forgive you, come join the team be a part of the family. And because of that gratitude, we want to live up to that holy nation status. Let's pray. Lord God, today I thank you that you have called us to be separate, not to be superior, not to somehow look down on others, but to live up to this incredible calling that we get to be the ones who have experienced your grace, your goodness, your mercy, and we get to talk about it. Lord, your favor toward us is never just for us, it is first a restoration to relationship with you, which we get to enjoy and benefit from, but then it is to be shared. And so as we are on this journey to knowing Jesus, to becoming holy, I pray that you would help us see that there is a purpose, there is a benefit to the world in which we live if we will be serious about this pursuit. Thank you for calling us to something that you're going to help us fulfill. Make us more like Jesus this week. It's in his name we pray. Amen.